It's our distinct pleasure to welcome you to the first ever Roaring Twenties podcast. The Royals' 20th anniversary season is on the horizon next fall. The team just completed its 19th season and clinched a playoff berth for the 10th time in 11 years. And despite the strange circumstances by which the 19th season in Royals history ended, there's a lot of excitement that has built throughout Berks County and throughout Flyers country about what the Royals were able to do in 2019-20. The team finished with 37 wins, 80 points, and clinched a berth on its earliest date in team history, securing the berth on March 7th, 2020 against Worcester. We'll have the chance throughout our podcast experience to discuss moments throughout the first 19 years of Royals history that have shaped this franchise into one of the more successful ones in the ECHL. The 19th season certainly was extremely successful for the Royals, not only on the ice, but off the ice as the team restored a lot of the roar that was brought with it with the Berks County Convention Center Authority's new ownership helping to rise attendance, and the attendance rise was one of the greatest in Royals history from season to season, as well as one of the greatest in the ECHL this year. And this is Voice of the Royals, David Fine with you, that'll be leading this. It's our distinct pleasure on our first Roaring Twenties podcast to welcome a member of the Royals broadcast booth that has seen more than 600 Royals home games, our partner in crime up in Section 102-103, Pat Richards, for 17 seasons, has been the Royals color commentator, and we're already looking forward to having him on for his 18th season, which will be the Royals' 20th anniversary season. Before we get to that, we wanted to remind all Royals fans, frequently asked questions due to the circumstances by which the 2019-20 season ended are live on RoyalsHockey.com. You can click on the FAQs, the Frequently Asked Questions, and as more information becomes available about the 20th anniversary season, uh, including a number of special promotions and things that will go on come next fall, we will distribute that information to you. Additionally, season tickets are now on sale for the 20th anniversary season. RoyalsHockey.com has that information. We can get you started as well if you are ready to restore the roar even further for the Royals 2020-2021 season. But without further ado, let's start our first Roaring Twenties podcast with fellow voice of the Royals, Pat Richards. We're here with our first ever guest on the Roaring Twenties podcast, Royals color commentator for 17 seasons and with the 20th anniversary season upcoming and 18th on the horizon. It's late March, but uh, even though we're not on a game broadcast together, it's our pleasure to welcome Pat Richards to the broadcast. Pat, first of all, uh, social distancing. Normally we'd be, I guess, sitting next to each other on a Friday, Saturday night at home. But uh, how have you been the last two weeks? How's your family? And uh, hope everyone's safe and well. All safe and well here, David. Uh, you know, kind of hunkered down at home with my wife, just like uh, virtually everybody in the United States is doing, and uh, trying to keep ourselves busy and occupied. Uh, got a nice 600-piece uh, jigsaw puzzle going on the dining room table, so we spent spent some time on that today. So, you know, I'm sure there's uh, card games and maybe chess or something to come, but uh, we'll get through this. Just hope that everybody out there uh, in our listening audience uh, will do the right things and um, take care of their families and be healthy. Yeah, of course. Uh, again, for all Royals fans uh, listening in, Pat, um, you've been a part of the broadcast for so many seasons, but um, I think what's most special before we get into some talk about uh, last season is, you know, we get the chance to interact with, you know, a number of season ticket holders. And uh, I mean, I, we miss them. We miss them in late March. And normally we'd be gearing up for the playoffs. The Royals had already clinched, but, um, you know, we're certainly thinking of all the people that always come up to our uh, broadcast booth and, you know, make sure to say hello before games and after games and at Royals Radio Recon as well. Well, David, as uh, we're both aware, the Royals have an outstanding and, you know, very, very loyal uh, bastion of fans that, uh, really follow the club and have been with the team for all of the all 19 seasons. I was not with the team until uh, season number three, uh, but there's obviously a whole cast of uh, season ticket holders that have been with the team since day one. And that's, that's a credit to them. Uh, they obviously love the game of hockey and have uh, really supported the Royals and allowed the Royals to become a fixture in Reading and in Berks County. Let's get into the 2019-20 season, Pat. Uh, in some ways, it still stings a little bit, I think, in all of our hearts, uh, knowing that this team had clinched a playoff berth for 
on the earliest date in team history, March 7th, which was a week before the ECHL officially suspended their season. But it was on March 7th that the team clinched at Worcester. And uh, the fun that we had doing games this year, the team was excellent at home. What are some of your takeaways from what we saw through 60 games of uh, Reading Royals hockey this year in terms of, you know, really we were, we were privileged to watch just a wonderful team on and off the ice? Well, David, it really was, and uh, credit has to be given to head coach uh, Kirk McDonald and Nick Luco, his assistant. They put together a very nicely balanced roster. I think they uh, they also had uh, a roster of uh, good guys. Uh, everyone that we had on Radio Recon, any, uh, any of the players that we had an opportunity to interact with, uh, they were really class guys, and they uh, – really did themselves proud as well as uh, the Royals crest proud, the way they uh, handled themselves and played, you know, during this abbreviated season. And David, you're right. I think your word of it still stings is very appropriate. Uh, it's kind of like what the heck just happened. Uh, all of us, I think with the clinching, the early clinching of the playoff spot, were anxiously awaiting uh, the playoffs to begin and had the feeling and, you and I both know it's hard to predict and say outright, you know, we're going to win the Kelly Cup. There's four grueling rounds of playoffs. you got to win 16 more games after a 72-game regular season. However, when you look at some of the pieces and you look at some of the numbers as the season uh, came to an early end, uh, kind of pointed in a direction that the Royals had a roster and a team that I would say with probably three or four other teams you would put – in the top bucket to say these are the leaders in the clubhouse if you will if you're going to outright pick a kelly cup winner i think it would have come from a group that probably would have included newfoundland south carolina florida cincinnati and probably allen you know all the divisional leaders but teams that had uh, were having outstanding regular seasons so i really felt that this was a team that was getting very hot at the right time uh, had a full roster when we're looking forward to perhaps a player or two also returning from Lehigh Valley. I think this team was really well positioned to make a deep and exciting playoff run this season. Unfortunately, we'll never know. Yeah, uh, and one of the stats that jumped out at me that is, I think, most interesting is that we all think of that, Pat, when you think back of the 2002-2003 Royals, they had Brian McCullough, Steve Rimshaw, Brad Rooney on the roster, and that was the year before you uh, became the Royals or a Royals color commentator. But uh, that team averaged the same uh, uh, amount of goals per game as this year's team. And this year's team struck me as extremely balanced, and yet they were on pace with a strong final month uh, offensively they are tied through 60 games. Again, we'll never know as the best offensive team in Royals history. Uh, the Kelly Cup team just dominated teams defensively and uh, as well as offensively, winning by the largest you know margin per game. But uh, this was one of the more talented, offensive-minded teams in Royals history. And we started to see in that last couple weeks six, five goals, you know, averaging four and a half goals a game over the last month and a half of the season, just some prolific numbers being put up. And we started to see a bunch of Royals players hit 10 and then starting to get near 15 and 20 goals as well. Well, and David, the other thing, uh, many nights we would look down at the score sheet and the Royals would uh, have won a game five to two and it was five goals from five different players. And they won a game six to three and it might be six goals from five players. It was. Uh, it certainly was not a, uh, if you will, a, a one-line hockey club. You know, you look at, uh, you know, Frank DeChera, Unfortunately, you know, for him, maybe more than anyone else, he was having a career year: 22 goals, 37 assists when the season ended. But Corey Mackin had scored his 20th. But beyond those, it was the, as I refer to it, the secondary scoring that I think really allowed the Royals to jump to another level. You look at Matt Goudreau, who had had some injury issues and was in and out of the lineup a bit, but 40 points in 38 games, including 11 goals. Perhaps uh, maybe one of the or a couple of players that really stood out, Trevor Gooch, had 12 goals in only 40 games, but was injured for a good part of the uh, last uh, month and a half of the season. Uh, you look at uh, uh, Thomas Ebbing came to the Royals, played uh, 46 games, 27 points, including 12 goals. He was a player that was brought here, frankly, to fill a roster spot so the Royals would have 16 skaters and delivered 27 points. 
And I think that that just points at, A, the ability of the coaching staff to identify talented players, and B, players that realize the opportunity that was presented to them and taking advantage of it and showing what they could do. That's where I think the Royals were going to be a dangerous team. You couldn't just focus on one line. And Larry, uh, Kirk McDonald could interchange players to prevent teams from focusing on one line. I just think the, the, the stars were in alignment that this team was going to be a force to be reckoned with during the playoffs. And it's so much a different perspective, too, Pat, that if you're the Norfolk Admirals who were in town when the season got suspended and then they went home and it was canceled, I mean, they were the, you know, when you're a team that's struggling, the Royals last played Wheeling, who had lost 10 out of 11 games when the Royals handily beat them in their last game of the season, that team's ready for the season to end. This team was getting hot. Uh, you mentioned Thomas Ebbing, who had two goals in the final game of the season, finished with, you know, basically over his last month and a half, somewhere around uh, close to a point per game after he started off a little slowly. And then there was the players that the Royals had developed and had moved on to Lehigh Valley and other spots throughout the American Hockey League. Uh, I meant to say Max Willman, 25 points in 20 games. He's maybe the most notable example of that. But even Matthew Strom, uh, who struggled in Lehigh Valley at the start of the year, finished around a point per game. Trevor Yates was getting ready to come back due to injury. Pascal LaBerge was finding his groove. Louis Serdar Gossage on an American League hockey deal was finding his way with the Royals. And then Kareel Ustamanko, of course, and Max Willman, I would say, maybe are the two most notable players that developed with the Royals this season from the goaltending and then, of course, the forward perspective. I think it's hard to argue that, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I was looking forward to it appeared at the time that the seasons ended that uh, Lehigh Valley was in a struggle to make a playoff spot. And had they not uh, made the playoffs, obviously, Corolla Stamenko would have been back with the Royals. And when he went up, he was among the hottest netminders uh, in the ECHL and clearly had found his stride in North America. Because we talked about it, David, all season long, literally from game one. He got better every single period of every single game. And I thought that he was really ready for the challenge that a playoff, a long playoff run brings. Uh, the other thing, David, was the, the late at the trade deadline, the deal that uh, Kirk McDonald made to bring Aaron Titcomb to, uh, to the Royals. Big, rugged defenseman, uh, putting him in a lineup that already included Eric Canodal, David Drake, uh, Rob Michael. I thought the Royals' defense corps was perfectly constructed to really lock teams down and protect one-goal leads. There are so many one-goal games in a playoff run, and scoring becomes much more difficult. I thought that that was something that was going to be a real strong point, and I thought that that deal uh, to bring Titcomb to the Royals might have been just the cherry on top of the milkshake, that it was just what the doctor ordered. Again, here with Pat Richards, our first-ever Roaring Twenties podcast. Pat with us since the 0304 season on the air. And, uh, Pat, let's uh, jump in a little bit to some of the numbers throughout this season. Uh, 80 points for this team, 37 wins. The Royals ended last season, though, on an eight-game point streak. And I think that one of the overriding themes throughout this year was that the team had fallen just one point short of making the 2019 Kelly Cup playoffs. And the momentum continued from the end of last season, I think, was really apparent at the start of this year, the want of the returning guys. And I think without that eight-game point streak last year, it'd be tough to predict if the Royals may have had this type of momentum coming into this year. Absolutely. And David, I did the same thing. I spent a little bit of time last week just kind of as I was cleaning out my bag and, you know, kind of getting as if the season was over in the regular fashion, putting things away, filing things and look through some numbers myself. And it was pretty remarkable when you're going through it at the time. Sometimes you don't recognize it. But, you know, as you mentioned, six one and one in their last eight games played. And the one defeat was that Sunday afternoon, three game and three day uh, kind of just dreary three to one loss to Brampton. You just have to chalk that up to the fatigue factor. But in those eight games, the Royals were averaging four and a quarter goals per game, holding the opposition to two. Uh, you go back a little further, and uh, 18 games is one fourth of a 72 game season. The last 18 games the Royals played, beginning January 31 and ending with their last game on March the 10th, they went 14 3 and 1. And more amazingly, David, what was the real Achilles 
heel for the Royals early in the season was the penalty kill. The team was last in the ECHL standings for the majority of the season, but they had worked themselves up two spots, largely on the basis of those last 18 games where they killed 46 of 52 penalties against, or 88.5%. Again, that drastic improvement in that particular uh, metric to me was highly important to position the team to make a playoff run. If you look at the Royals Kelly cup championship team in 2013, they were a phenomenal penalty killing uh, team. And that seemed to drive the whole mentality defensive mentality of the hockey team. And I was beginning to get the feeling that this team was going to be constructed in a similar way down the stretch you know, really focusing and locking down teams, killing off crucial penalties, and really using that to be the uh, the cornerstone of their defensive prowess. At, at one point in the season when the Royals were near 74, 75%, that was earlier, then it was sort of hovered around 76 to 78 for a while. Uh, it was almost assured at that point, Pat, that we were discussing that this Royals team might be the worst penalty-killing team in the team's history. It turns out with the late stretch, they avoided that. The 0102 team uh, still has the lowest percentage, which was the inaugural season team. The pickup of Aaron Titcomb helped a lot with that. And even I, I thought what the coaches pointed out, which is maybe something that gets lost in the fray with the fans, and you talk about the team's balance and construction, but uh, getting a guy like Aaron Titcomb, uh, which was made at the deadline in exchange for Jeremy Beaudry, Beaudry wasn't a penalty-killing defenseman. Titcomb obviously was uh, sort of rugged, six foot four, 230 pounds. That prevented the Royals from always having to use Garrett Cockerell and or Rob Michael or Eric Canodal, whom we would normally see on the power play. So those guys would be fresher in other situations, and it's a little bit of a shame that we never got to see it play out. But uh, what strikes me on that is sort of the – advanced thought from both Nick Luco and Kirk McDonald that you know you're you're positioning yourself not just for the postseason by picking up another big strong defenseman to who can you know contribute in a variety of ways but you're also making it so that you have backups for guys like uh, Eric Canodal who's the reigning defenseman of the year and Garrett Cockerell. Absolutely David and the other thing is uh, Titcomb is another one of uh, what I like to call a long stick at 6'4", you look at Canodal and David Drake at 6'6", that gave the coaching staff three defensemen uh, that you can put out on a penalty kill, and they've got a wingspan that can really lock teams down and prevent shots from getting to the net that obviously shorter defensemen just can't cover that much of the defensive zone and create problems in all the passing lanes. And I thought that it was – I was looking forward to see, seeing Aaron Titcomb in a royal sweater to see how he fit in because I was really interested in how would Kirk McDonald begin to use and Nick Luco begin to use uh, the defenseman on the roster. Uh, it, I thought it was a really a tremendously well thought through deal, as, as you indicated. And I thought it was, uh, as I said, kind of like a, uh, just that perfect last piece to the puzzle uh, that may have allowed this team to really make uh, make it fun in April and hopefully May. The Royals in this season, at the beginning of it, had uh, Ralph Kademi, which is sort of scary to think what this team may have looked like with Kademi suffering what ultimately is a season-ending injury when he was up with the Laval Rocket. Uh, we mentioned in our little preview here that uh, Kademi had 21 goals in the basically first two months of the season before he received the call-up, and uh, it, it was basically ridiculous by the time he got eventually and deservingly <laughs> received his professional tryout with the Laval Rocket. Um, what a joy it was to see a player that had never received an American Hockey League opportunity, uh, a former 30-goal scorer back when he was down in the Mountain Division, uh, really prove himself, and hopefully for his sake, at the beginning of next year, if he's not with the Royals, maybe he'll have an AHL deal, hopefully with Lehigh Valley or hopefully elsewhere, uh, how special it was to see Kademi uh, uh, outperform the entire league and lead the league in the first two months of the season in goals and points. Well, David, it, you know, it's hard to believe that uh, he played only 25 games with the Royals, as you know, 34 points, including those 21 goals and was still tied for sixth in team scoring after being gone since literally, uh, what, the 1st of December, maybe earlier. And to have that kind of an impact 
that early in the season. You know, I thought that that helped the Royals get off to a, you know, get off to a really decent start. Because as you know, in this league, don't have the right mix of players or a roster that is deficient in some other significant way uh, can make for a long season. Uh, but, you know, we thought it was kind of going to be, well, the, the end of the rail if when uh, Kademi got the opportunity in the American League. But that's when other players step forward. And I go back to Frank DeCher and Corey Mackin, particularly Mackin, I thought really seemed to step into that void and his offensive confidence continued to grow to the point where I thought he was the Royals' most dangerous offensive player when the season ended. He sort of reminds me a little bit of the role that Michael Hunterbrinker took on in the first couple of seasons, or the first season when Kirk McDonald was here. The rookie that is out of, well, he's out of the WCHA, Ferris State University. Um, Hunterbrinker was out of Minnesota State, and uh they're different types of players, of course, but in terms of a rookie stepping up, he ended up being the rookie that always seems to step up for the Royals. That's sort of been the tradition throughout the 20 years of Royals history, as we've talked about a couple times, Pat, that it always seems like there's an unexpected player or one that you might not be counting on as much at the start of the year, and normally it's a rookie or a second-year guy that ends up potentially becoming one of the MVPs of the team. Well, David, I think that's a credit to the coaches that have stood behind the bench uh, for the Royals through the years, particularly Larry Corvo and now Kirk McDonald, who have a philosophy that, first of all, both of them very excellent judges of talent. Uh, but it's one thing to be able to judge the talent, but to have the courage to put unknown, if you will, unknown players into critical roles and play them at critical times of the game uh, takes uh, I think a little bit of you know greater intestinal fortitude as a coach, but that's what particularly Corville and McDonald have done. When a player comes to Reading and is signed, even if it's temporarily, and they know that it's temporarily, they're going to get they're going to get ice time, and if they play well, they're going to get more ice time, and they may get time on special teams. Uh, this is not an organization that signs a player to fill out the 16th man on the roster and then plays only 14 skaters. If you're in uniform, you're expected to produce. Even if you just walked into the locker room early on a Saturday morning and you're in the starting lineup on a Saturday night because the matchup is right, that's your opportunity. And I think that that organizationally, uh, that uh, is what the perspective of the Royals uh, that exists among the hockey community and why players through the years have wanted to come and play for the Royals. And in addition to that, the Royals under the Flyers affiliation and Lehigh Valley being the American Hockey League affiliate received so much help this season from Lehigh Valley and from Philadelphia, more than uh, I recall certainly in the first two years of the Kirk McDonald era, which started in late 2017 and then continued into the 2017-18 season. But the help that this team received, I just did a quick little numbers read here, which was that there were 15 AHL or NHL contracted skaters that were on the Royals throughout the course of the season, which is clearly more than there were in either of the first two years Kirk McDonald was head coach. But in addition to players like Eric Knodel, who's the reigning defenseman of the year and just excellent, he was an AHL deal player. Getting the help on certain occasions where even a player like James DeHaas had the opportunity to come down to maybe fill a void where the Royals may have been looking at playing four or five defensemen. Uh, the way that the geography was utilized this year became an advantage for the Royals, much like what Reading had seen other division rivals or historical foes maybe receive in the past. Couldn't agree more, David. In fact, I think that this season was the, from the, the Royals' perspective, the ultimate example of how an affiliate affiliate relationship should work. And I hadn't counted the players, but it's kind of like, you know, I know it when I see it, you just had the feeling that there was a closer commitment by the Flyers and Lehigh Valley and Reading to work together to develop players. And uh, with the convenience of Lehigh Valley, uh, that's the way it should work. If they aren't playing on a particular night and due to injury, uh, the Royals are short of defensemen, they should send somebody like James DeHaas down. It might only be for one or two nights, but it sure beats playing with 15 skaters. And I think that uh, hopefully that all three parties to the affiliation arrangement learned from the success is what I would call it this year and will continue to find ways to work 
in close concert with one another with the ultimate goal of obviously developing players that at some point in time the Flyers would look to consider as NHL players. The difference between this year and last season, of course, being as well that not only the the sheer numbers with the affiliate help that Chuck Fletcher provided in his first full season as Flyers general manager, but Kirill Ustamenko, Felix Sandstrom, and Tom McCollum were the netminders for all but one game the entire season. Uh, Trevor Gorsuch had a win against Wheeling uh, back in November in his only game with the team. But the other 59 games you had Ustamenko play in 31, Sandstrom play in 25, and then a, a very er- you know motivated and emerging Tom McCollum play in six. Uh, Ustamenko, clearly the season star of that unit, might be the first or second, maybe third star of the entire Royals season. He brought a certain joy out of this group that when we had players on Radio Recon or would talk with them in interviews after games, before games, that became a somewhat of a unifying factor, I would say, for the Royals this season. Without a doubt. And, you know, it's unfortunate that uh, just primarily due to his newness to North America and to the English language, he was still developing his ability to communicate in English. I would love to have had an opportunity to have a radio recon chat with him, but it was obvious that he was extremely well-liked by every single one of his teammates. And it was also obvious on the ice, David, that I always look to, you know, make kind of make a subjective judgment on uh, does the team have confidence and do they play confidently in front of this netminder versus that netminder. And without denigrating any netminders that have played for the Royals, there is a difference. There are some players that have passed through Reading as netminders that it was obvious that the team played tight and tense and maybe didn't have the confidence that uh, the netminder uh, that night would make the big save at the big time. It was painfully obvious that the team had extreme confidence that Ustamenko had their backs. And by that, I mean, uh, you know, defensive miscue, they counted on him and knew that he would make the big save. And he was getting, I think, uh, more comfortable in that role. Notwithstanding the fact that you look as a rookie, he had outstanding numbers, 2.40 goals against and a 919 save percentage, both of those improving at the point in time that he went to Lehigh Valley where he finished the shortened season. Had he come back to the team, I would have expected potentially uh, those numbers to have been slightly lower in the remaining uh, games in the regular season to the point maybe he was going to approach a 2.3 goals against and exceed a 920 uh, save percentage, which are outstanding both for a rookie and in the ECHL. Yeah, I always go back to this, and when whenever we have a chance to chat with Kirk McDonald next, he said it multiple times when we had him on Radio Recon or chatted with him throughout the season, but... Uh, Kirill was basically playing, well, it's Russian junior hockey, the MHL. The way that Coach McDonald described it was that you're not receiving the type of coaching as a 19-year-old Belarusian-born playing in a Russian junior league, you know, type of uh, adjustments that the coaches will help give you relative to now you're working with Flyers development goaltending prospects. And I think that's what made it even more incredible for Kirill this year. Not only was he adjusting to English with world-class coaches but for lack of a better way of saying it the disparity in coaching between the Russian Junior League the MHL which can be a feeder to the to the KHL versus what you get here in North America there's just such a a difference in uh, uh, maybe the skill level and the teaching ability the tutorship and mentorship of these coaches and for him to come to North America, having had three, four seasons of that previous mentorship in the MHL, he comes to North America and he's one of arguably the top 10 goalies in the league while trying to learn from Flyers goaltending coaches, development coaches, without really even being able to understand absolutely everything they're saying, boggles the mind looking back on it that he had that successful of a season without maybe understanding everything that was being told to him. Excellent point, David. In fact, I would dare say, I'd, I might say nine out of 10 young men playing professional sports of any kind, trying to overcome those obstacles would have failed. Uh, I, it's just remarkable what he did, uh, you know, in such a short period of time at 19 years old, 
And, you know, as you mentioned, being dropped into an English-speaking setting, a, a strange town, and uh, all you know is you're supposed to stop a puck, but you uh, have not played at a level anywhere near what the ECHL is. And, you know, the Bears repeating, the ECHL is a much different league than it was 17 years ago when I began to uh, be on the broadcast with uh, the Royals. It's a much more skilled league. There are no uh, weekend players anymore. So net minding is a difficult job, and he handled it in a very admirable way. And, you know, you look at, you know, him with him backstopping the team, uh, we were talking earlier about uh, some of the numbers, the way the the team ended the season. It, uh, they were fifth in even strength scoring, averaging almost 2.8 goals per game, but they were seventh in even strength goals against, 2.1 goals against at even strength. That, what is that, 0.68 plus 0.68, that positive differential at even strength at that level pointed so well to the, how this team could play in the playoffs. We all know in the playoffs, the whistle gets put away sometimes, fewer power play attempts, more five-on-five or four-on-four hockey. And to be able to uh, have a differential like that at even strength, I think uh, is a testament to the team, to Ustamenko, and to their ability to uh, play at five-on-five, which would have been, again, another thing that I would have uh, relished the opportunity to see in a playoff setting. Man, it's hard not to look forward to what could have been, which is – a potential playoff series between the Royals and the Newfoundland Growlers, uh, the defending Kelly Cup champions. The uh, I was chatting about it with the uh, Growlers uh, broadcaster, Chris Ballard, a uh, friend of our broadcast. He's uh, been on for a couple interviews here and there, and we've done the same uh, with the Newfoundland uh, radio side as well. Uh, but the joy that there was this season, not only going up to Mile One Center, where it's a very unique atmosphere, but uh, – the Royals and the Growlers playing games at Santander Arena this year. The most visited opponent, by the way, of any team that came to Santander Arena in 2019-20. The skill level, the rivalry that grew towards the end of last year and carried into this season, combined with the underdog mentality that the Royals took on, yet they had more points in the season series than the Growlers, even in a win or a loss, might be the one thing on Royals players, Royals staff minds, Pat, that I think is one is one of the, in the last five years of Royals hockey, one of the great what-ifs. What if the Royals and the Growlers had met each other in what seemed to be a an inevitable almost feeling in a second round of a playoff series in the Kelly Cup playoffs? David, I completely agree. But, you know, uh, one step before that, the Royals were, you know, finishing the season, as we've already talked about, on a real high note. They were only five points behind the Growlers when the season came to an end, both teams having played 60 games. The Royals clearly had a very realistic chance to make that push at the wire uh, to maybe nose out the Growlers for the divisional championship. That seemed impossible I would say going back to the second week, maybe Valentine's Day, it, I think the Royals were 9, 10, maybe 11 points behind Newfoundland. Didn't seem it was possible. It does, even though there was uh, 12 games to play for the Royals, I think Brampton and Maine, I'm looking here, yeah, they had 10 each uh, remaining. It was falling out. You could almost say the North Division appeared that it was going to be Newfoundland playing Maine at, in fourth and the Royals and Brampton matching up. The Royals had a nine-point lead over Brampton and uh, Brampton the only three-point lead over Maine. Uh, it did, uh, Worcester was out and Adirondack was 11 points out of a playoff spot. So it did appear that it was destined for Newfoundland to meet the Maine Mariners in round one and the Royals to have home ice uh, in a series against uh, the Brampton Beast. And I, like you, you can't overlook the first-round matchups, but I, like you, was uh, we have the luxury as broadcasters that coaches and players don't have with one eye peeking toward a possible Newfoundland-Redding matchup in the second round. And I agree with you that that could have potentially been maybe the most epic playoff series in Royals history. Again, uh, we can't you know turn the clock back. We'll never know. We'll just have to hope that maybe the same opportunity presents itself in 2021. Let's go on to 2013. Uh, sure. Yeah, this will be uh, this will be fun to kind of <laughs> finish it up a little bit. The um, 
2013 Kelly Cup champion Reading Royals who end up sweeping, or not sweeping, but every one of their wins in the first round of that series against the Greenville, uh, uh, not the Swamp Rabbits, what was it, the um, Greenville, uh, oh my goodness. Road Warriors. That's right, the uh, Greenville Road Warriors. Um, two shutouts from Mark Awuya, two shutouts from Riley Gill. Awuya played only because Gill uh, was recovering from a little bit of a minor injury. The Royals win in round two against the Florida Everblades. In round three, they defeat the Cincinnati Cyclones in five games, and and then the, in game six, the Roy, I beg your pardon, they defeat the Cincinnati Cyclones in the conference finals and then win the Kelly Cup finals in five games over the Stockton Thunder. And I kind of want to leave this uh, up to you. Where where shall we start with the uh, 2013 Kelly Cup champion Reading Royals, Pat? Well, I think, you know, just a couple of things that to pop into my mind of memories of that playoff run. Uh, first was the seven-game series with Florida in the in the second round, and uh, most of our listeners and Royals fans know that the Everblades have, have and continue to be one of the top-tier franchises in the ECHL. They're always in the playoffs. They always seem to make a deep run, and they faced off in the second round. And I think what what tipped the series in the Royals' favor. Uh, when you look back at they lost game one, they lost game three. They opened the series in Reading and uh, split it and went to Florida and lost game three to go down two games to one. And I believe it was uh, they win the fourth game in overtime to tie it. I believe it was game five. They end up winning 5-4 in overtime. I think they came back from a three-goal deficit. I, I couldn't find the game sheet, but I, I think they that was the game where they came back from a three-goal deficit, and it just seemed like it was going. It was inevitable that the team was going to you know win the series after they won that game five in overtime to take a three-two series lead. But they came back to Reading with an opportunity to clinch the series on home ice and lost a tough one, one uh, two to one, and. Uh, then face a game seven on home ice, won it going away. Barry Almeida, uh, fans will recognize that name. He had the game and series winning goal in that contest as the Royals won four to one. That sent them to Cincinnati. And the Royals really had uh, had some payback for the Cyclones. And even though the players and the teams changed dramatically, we just mentioned that seven-game series loss in 2008 they also lost a heartbreaker in 2010 when the Royals had a three-game-to-none lead over the Cyclones and lost the last four in that series. And that was the same year that uh, uh, I believe the Flyers came back and beat Boston four straight. Uh, but the Royals lost four straight to Cincinnati in 2010. So this was the chance for uh, redemption. And right out of the box, it, it, you could tell that it was going to be one bounce either way was going to decide the series. And it just bears mentioning Riley Gill was in net for that entire series. Uh, the Royals open the series on home ice, win the first two games in overtime, the first win in double overtime on a goal by Bobby Shea. So they have a two to nothing lead. They go, uh, go to Cincinnati, lose game three in overtime. So it's two games to one. Uh, they win the last two in Cincinnati, three to two game winning goal, Yannick Tifu. And then an empty netter, but the game-winning goal in Game 5 to win the series, none other than current head coach Kirk McDonald, got the goal that wins the series and sends the Royals to their first-ever Kelly Cup uh, final series against uh, the Western Conference uh, Stockton Thunder. There's a number of uh, great moments from the run-up to the Kelly Cup finals, a number of great celebrations uh, as well, meaning celebrations of goals. Uh, one of them, before we get to Nikita Kishirsky, was – in in the decisive game against Florida, you might know where I'm going with this. In Game Seven, uh, yes, I do. Yeah, Ian O'Connor. Uh, there's an old video of it that's really grainy and on this machine. I don't even know what it's called. It's not a VCR player. It's like a sub VCR player. It's not an eight track or anything. But uh, Ian O'Connor scores to give the Royals a multi, uh, increase the Royals' advantage, and then. Uh, starts digging a grave for which he received a 10-minute misconduct with his stick where he's digging down like a grave digger, saying to Florida that, you guys are done, I'm digging your grave. Uh, being in the building for that, I know you remember it. What was that like? It was incredible, and he did it. 
uh, as, uh, kind of at the end of his goal celebration, and I don't remember, uh, David, you'd have to look up and confirm. I don't remember if his was the goal that made it three to one or four to one. I'm thinking it may have been the final goal that really solidified the win. Uh, but he's down on one knee, making the shoveling uh, motion uh, with his stick, throwing the dirt, uh, the imaginary dirt over his shoulder as he glides in front of the Florida bench. You could see the Florida players just seething. Uh, but he welcomed the 10-minute minor because that sent the Royals. Uh, it, you could tell it, it, the game was too far gone. Uh, they weren't going to come back from a 4-1 to deficit, so there was no harm except for the 10-minute misconduct. But it was one of those, uh, one of those interesting playoff moments, and uh, I think uh, the, the team really felt relieved. That, uh, Florida was another team that had been uh, periodically their nemesis in the playoffs. Uh, and uh, this was a chance for a bit of uh, a bit of redemption. Nikita Kaczynski scores one of the more significant goals in Royals history in Game One of the Kelly Cup Finals. Uh, the Royals, in a frenetic end to the game, uh, gave up a couple goals to Stockton. It went five-five into overtime, where Stockton had scored, I believe it was seconds after the Royals had taken a lead Stockton scored a quick one back and uh, I have the box score here yeah so the Royals took a 5-4 lead in the final minute of the third period in home of the finals 24 uh, 26 seconds later uh, Stockton responded after Alex Berry's goal to force overtime with 22 seconds left they scored that goal in overtime though at 942 Nikita Kishirsky, uh, uh scores on kind of like a, a turnaround shot from from what our perspective would be the far circle of the ice and he goes into a diving slide on his stomach kind of like superman reaching out to uh, uh save someone and lands on the ice and goes on his stomach as the royals win six to five take a one nothing series advantage over the stockton thunder and uh, that game still goes down as one of the more historic in Royals history that, Pat, I'll still hear season ticket holders mention frequently the end of that game and then the Kashirsky goal in celebration that gave the Royals a series lead they never surrendered. I don't know how people could have watched that if they had a heart, a cardiac condition because <laughs> it, was, it was the tension, the excitement, the crowd noise was incredible. I believe there was, I'm looking at the box score myself, just under 5,500 people in the building that night. But it sounded like 15,000, and I, I say that sincerely. One of the loudest crowds that I remember in all my years uh, being involved with the Royals. You look at the fact that this is game one of the championship series. There were four goals scored in four minutes and 48 seconds of the third period after the 15-minute mark. And the Royals, you know, the crowd, it's 4-4, it's nervous, it's nail-biting. Alex Berry scores at 19-12 to give the Royals a 5-4 lead and presumably a scintillating win. Uh, they, they being Stockton, as you said, 26 seconds later at 1938, the celebration had not ended uh, for the Alex Berry goal. Stockton scores and ties at 5-5. And I remember – Mark Thompson and I talking at the intermission between the third period and the first overtime, how despite the fact that it seemed fairly obvious when you watched the game that the Royals were more skilled and more talented and perhaps the better team. But as David, as you know, and we all know, in a seven-game series, you win game one, you have a huge advantage, particularly if you do it on the road. And if Stockton wins that game in overtime, the Royals might have well gone on and still won the Kelly Cup, but I think it would have been a much different type of series than it ended up being. But you're right, Kashirsky made a play. Uh, if you're looking at it from our current broadcast location, as you said, the far side in what for the Royals was the left-wing circle, took a pass and spun around and uh, uh, beat the net, netmoy, uh, netminder Roy and uh, ended up uh, giving them the big win. Uh, and the Royals, 49 shots on goal that night, including eight in the overtime. And I really look back and think that that to me was the turning point goal of the series. I think it just gave the Royals all the momentum. And, uh, you know, the, the, the next very next night, uh, Riley Gill stops all 27 shots. They win 4 nothing, and took a 
two game to none lead to Stockton. And even though there were going to be three games potentially in Stockton, it was a confident Royals team that boarded the plane westward. I think they really knew after game two that they were the better team. They had to deliver the mail and take care of business, but they were the better team. And really seeming, you know, all but put the series away in game three with the three to one win. I uh, flew out for games four and five. Uh, Stockton, to their credit, played a very strong game in the fourth game. They had a big crowd there that night, and uh, they uh, came away with a very exciting four to three win to prolong the series. But uh, you know, everyone I think that follows the Royals know what happened next. Uh, Riley Gill with another shutout. Mark Matera gets the first goal, which proves to be the game winner as the Royals win and take the Kelly Cup home with a six nothing win to win the series four games to one. The final five minutes in the broadcast booth, what was that like describing with Mark Thompson those final few minutes? Well, all I can say is it was difficult to contain our excitement because at the stoppages of play or when there was a break and, uh, you know, a commercial on air, uh, off, uh, off air, off mic, we were looking at each other. And I remember when it got to when it, the clock got down under three minutes, it's a, a six nothing game. Um, I'm just looking at the box score. The Royals made it six nothing with three minutes and 35 seconds left. When that clock ticked under two minutes, even at six nothing, I, I wasn't quite ready. But when it ticked under two minutes, I do recall looking over at Mark Thompson and just mouthing the words, we're going to win the cup. And he just nodded his head. And it was it, it was a. Uh, it was a feeling, uh, an uncomparable feeling in terms of my involvement with the team. It was just a tremendous thrill. The locker room after was uh, one of my great memories that I'll take from my time with the Royals, being privileged to be invited in by the players and enjoy uh, a celebration just like you see when the Stanley Cup is presented in those locker rooms. It was every bit the same. And the Royals marched out of the building with Yannick Tifu carrying the Kelly cup over his shoulder with those red plaid pants that fans have seen him wore before in Reading as we headed out uh, into the night with the Kelly cup on our way back to Reading. The parade, the couple days later, uh, I was not here for it, but um, so many of the season ticket holders, fans, uh, players, former players, Kirk McDonald, of course, uh, relived glowingly the support that made it feel like, you know, our version in Berks County of, what could be the closest thing to a, a high-level championship parade, which was thousands of people lining from Penn Avenue and West Reading uh, and the border of Wyomissing all the way across to Santander Arena and then the celebration on the inside with uh, former Royals general manager Gordon Kay and the players. Uh, that ride across, seeing the fan support, uh, I heard it was somewhat unexpected from the front office's perspective as well as your own that you weren't, we weren't really quite sure what kind of support there would be, and there's thousands of people, 10, 20, 30 deep at points, uh, uh, depending on where you were, watching the team ride across into downtown Reading. It was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen, David. I, I like you, I had, I had uh, rushed home from uh, work. I worked that day and rushed uh, back to Reading from Allentown. And the parade began in the parking lot, what is now holding the new Wawa on Penn Avenue. And they had a trolley that took all of the uh, players and front office staff, et cetera, from Santander Arena out to the parking lot where we climbed on the hook and ladder truck and there was a few people there in front of the M&T Bank and the, you know, the, the funeral home on the corner. But once you kind of came over that little hill and started down Penn Avenue, I was completely blown away at how many people were there on both sides. It was unbelievable. And when we crossed the Penn Street Bridge, those last few blocks to 8th Street, they were the people were 8, 10, 12 deep. I, and I am not exaggerating. It was it was humbling to see that many people uh, come out to celebrate the championship. And one of my, two of my favorite memories about the ride in and the parade was it was a hook and ladder. And it bears mention because it's the same player we talked about with respect to the Florida Everblades series. Ian O'Connor uh, was up where the Tillerman at the back end of the hook and ladder. And it was a Reading fire department, obviously driving and controlling the vehicles. Well, the firefighter that was the Tillerman gave uh, OC, as he was known to the team, 
his fireman's helmet, and Ian O'Connor was the tillerman all the way in to Santander Arena. And big Alex Berry, who was a big, strong power forward, uh, thankfully he took care of me because I had come from the office. He had a nice collection in a plastic bag of adult beverages, which many of us enjoyed on that unbelievable ride into downtown Reading. Royals winning in five games over the Stockton Thunder that year. Uh, the first Kelly Cup in Royals history, and um, certainly with this 20th anniversary season coming up, there's going to be a lot of those uh, memories relived, whether on social media, of course, through ticket promotion, sales, et cetera, when that uh, time is is right for that and uh, we get a little bit uh, more into the off season, but Pat, uh, it's time we did for Royals Radio Recon a number of this and that, or this or that moments where you have to pick, or you know we might put you on the spot. Uh, Going to do that a little bit here. I'll start off with a couple easy ones, then we'll get into some more, uh, some more Royals related ones where I'm sure you won't offend every or anyone in uh, an hour of a podcast. Uh, but uh, we'll start with an easy one. What is your favorite hockey movie? My favorite hockey movie, Miracle. Over Slapshot? Yep. I, uh, in fact, uh, you know, as you know, we had a Royals game this February 22nd, the 40th anniversary, and I watched the movie that day, and it just so happens with uh, the downtime we're all experiencing now, I watched it, as a matter of fact, just yesterday. Yesterday on uh, NBC as well, I learned something about the Miracle on Ice because it was the hockey day in America, so they were, you know, showing uh, – live game action and uh al michaels who was broadcasting the game along with ken dryden famously uttered the words of course do you believe in miracles yes uh to which dryden responds unbelievable uh learned that michaels and dryden hung around uh for the next game which was finland versus sweden and they broadcasted the game and it was not on air they actually did the game off air in case the tape delay that NBC was running had a technical issue that they'd be able to cut to Michaels and Dryden doing a game that was never broadcasted uh, over the air. So I thought that was uh, extremely uh, interesting. And, and Michael said it was painful from the broadcast perspective. The last thing was that Dave Silk is the last person that Michael says in the course of the game play-by-play uh, before the famous Do You Believe in Miracles? Yes. And that Dave Silk on a number of, you know, reunion occasions or just keeping up with Al Michaels over the years, Dave Silk thanks Al Michaels more than any other <laughs> player that has thanked Michaels for capturing the moment uh, because he said, you were the one that said my name last and it uh, prevents uh, people that don't believe me uh, that I was on the team from uh, uh, scraping from their memories that I was a part of the Miracle on Ice. Uh, you learn something new because about I believe him. I believe he says something like Morrow pushes it to Silk or something like that. Yeah. Uh, bef yeah, before it cuts, and then the uh, when the, the U.S. defeats Finland on that Sunday, most people that was Sunday morning. That game was played 11 a.m. Uh, local time in Lake Placid. Uh, Al Michaels, uh, the line there is this impossible dream comes true. You know, it's kind of a lot of people you have trouble remembering what did he say when they won the gold medal. But yeah, this impossible dreams comes true. I watched that and I picked that easily because that, in my mind, David, is the greatest sports, not hockey, the greatest sports upset in the history of sport to this point in, in time, in my opinion. I'll give you a, a little bit of a softball here. Uh, after, you know, I, I know you're a St. Louis in. And uh, you clearly know everything, all historical facts about St. Louis, as we learned on Radio Recon uh, a few months ago. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can pick one place to get a bite to eat from in St. Louis. Uh, after uh, we are finished with the great quarantine of 2020, you have to pick one place where if you're in downtown St. Louis or anywhere around the St. Louis area, you have to go for a bite to eat, dessert, whatever it is. Uh, where are you headed in St. Louis to get, uh, to get some food? Uh, I would probably head to Charlie Gito's downtown. What do they have there? It's a classic Italian restaurant. Uh, used to be right across the street from Bush Stadium, too. It's now one ball or two blocks further than the current Bush Stadium. But it, uh, for years and years, was a uh, famous hangout of uh, a lot of celebrities, et cetera. The, one of the nights that we were in there after a Cardinal game specifically, we saw 
uh, Bob Costas having a late dinner with Tony Las- uh, Tommy Lasorda. Um, so you could, you, there was always a good spot for a celebrity watching, if you will, uh, with respect to, uh, particularly the St. Louis Cardinals. All right. I'll go into a couple tricky- and wa- walking distance, walking distance to the stadium. Beautiful area too downtown. Uh, have had the opportunity to visit St. Louis once. Um, think it's really nice what they do with the, with of course the new version of Bush stadium and, um, makes it very walkable and nice too. Uh, I would go with Ted Drew's frozen yogurt would have to be if I had to have anything uh, I'll go with Ted Drew's frozen yogurt not even from the St. Louis airport in Terminal E or whatever but because uh, they have a they have a vending machine that gives you frozen yogurt but um, they do they do that's an excellent <laughs> choice can't argue David with that choice all right uh, I'll do a couple Royals ones here and then I'll ask you about Joe Buck which I've been waiting an hour to do uh, <laughs> all right. Um, so you have to pick one goaltender in Royals history to start a game for Reading. Who are you selecting? You know, David, that as I uh, filibuster to have a moment to think uh, through my answer, but that might be the best uh, and most thought provoking question you could ask a Royals fan. It would have to be somebody that's pretty well been with the team throughout its existence. Cause as most people know, if you look at uh, that is a position that the Royals have been uh, served very well by any number of uh, really superb goaltenders. I, I would have to say that going back to a comment I made earlier when we were kind of recapping the season in terms of the way the swagger with which the team in front of him played, I would go with Philip Grubauer. A lot of people would argue. I thought that, oh, go ahead. I, was just, uh, I, I don't, you know, the 2012-13 team was just a tremendous team, but I, I, I just uh, subjectively I realized, but it just seemed that the team played with that extra bit, extra edge of confidence with Grubauer in the net. It's amazing, too, the, the number of talented people that have played goaltender for the Royals. Jonathan Quick would be <laughs> a, a tough answer to argue. In that same season, it would be tough to even argue, argue against Riley Gill. Uh, if you go back to the uh, – uh, even just a couple seasons ago for the Royals, there's been a you know just a number of uh, people like G- – not that John Muse ended up becoming one of the greatest netminders in Royals history, but Reading a couple of years ago in Kirk McDonald's first year, Muse was 14-2 and two at home for the Royals. So certainly, uh, you know, the confidence when he was playing in the Royals home stadium, the Santander Arena, maybe in the future we might have the perspective that if Correa Luz Domenico plays again for the Royals, he was... 13-1-2 at Santander Arena this season. He could even be an answer down the line, maybe with a little bit more experience. But the Grubauer answer, what he's been able to do in the NHL, uh, a Stanley Cup champion with the Washington Capitals, now a very highly touted netminder for the Colorado Avalanche, uh, plus the confidence in that we forget that he was the one of the agents of turnaround for Reading in 2012-13 where he led the Royals back after a horrendous, I think it was a one in five start off the top of my head uh, to lead the team back, leading the team back to uh, uh, end up getting first place in the division. And not only that, but their remarkable turnaround come mid late November into December. And then that just rolled all the way throughout the course of the season uh, makes him just, it's, it's hard to argue against any of these players like quick, that we've mentioned, or, or, or Grubauer, or you could go on and on with this list. Barry Brust, Yataka Fukufuji, two of the more famous former Royals netminders. But Grubauer might be the most heard answer, I would say, next to Riley Gill or along with Riley Gill, sort of one in 1A in terms of the uh, two netminders that might be the one guy to win a game for you in Royals history. And, David, it's hard to pick against Riley Gill. He backstopped the only championship team the Royals have ever had. But just going on, on gut, kind of. I, I, as I said earlier, I, I view it from my perspective and my limited knowledge. I just kind of try to get a feeling for how confidently does the team play in front of a goaltender. And I don't think there's been anyone any better. Uh, they may have played, if you could measure it, they may have played equally as confident in front of Riley Gill or Jonathan Quick. But I don't think 
there's been a net minder that the team played more confidently in front of than Philip Grubauer. I'll put you on the spot with uh, one other uh, one other question here, which is besides. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll ask it this way: So, Larry Corville is the winningest head coach in Royals history, followed up by Kirk McDonald. Uh, Larry started the run of nine straight seasons of the Royals making the playoffs. Redding has now made the playoffs in 10 of the last 11 years. Larry went eight years in a row. Kirk has gone two of his first three. And, of course, just that narrow miss a couple years uh, ago for the Royals now back at the end of 2018-2019. What exactly, if you had to summarize, put this franchise on the map given the level of success that it's had where, where if you had to look at a holistic view of the royals became a destination organization in the echl at this time where in the course of history over the last 19 going into 20 years where would you pinpoint that i i think i would frankly i would pinpoint it and this uh, kind of ties back to a comment i made earlier in our discussion david I would put it to the first full season that Larry Corville was behind the bench. And it relates to uh, his ability. I, I, thought, I think that he was a remarkable uh, judge of talent, an identifier of talent. But step two, I think, is he kind of initiated the uh, implied commitment to players, if you will, that if, you, if I decide – to sign you I've already made a decision I believe you're talented and and I'm going to give you ice time and opportunities to prove me right or prove me wrong I think all players want is a chance uh, to prove themselves and I think Larry Corville judging talent and then being willing to take chances on some players I go all the way to a player in Ross Joe Zapala was an Ivy League player played very little his first season, but similar to Michael Hunterbrinker, similar to Corey Mackin, by year two, all of a sudden, he's one of the team leaders. I think that began to turn the franchise in the direction where more talented players, uh, I think, recognized and said, wow, I want to go to Reading and play. I want to play for Larry Corville. I think that turned the franchise and headed it in the right direction after if you will, the bottom point was that 2008-2009 season where uh, it was dreadful season. Uh, the team was virtually, I think, uh, mid-January when the coaching change was made and Larry Corville took over as the head coach. I think the team was something like 9-23-4. We knew that um, Mark Thompson and I, by January, you knew that you weren't going to make the playoffs. It was just a dismal season. But there was signs at the end of that season, a couple of trades that were made that brought some players in. Uh, and you thought that if some of these players can return to the team next year uh, in 2009-10, we can start to build something, and that's exactly what happened. Pat, before we let you go, uh, first of all, this has been a really fun uh, uh, spot. Uh, came through my head as we were talking that we'll uh, play this on Mixler uh, tomorrow night when we unveil the podcast as well for our listeners. Uh, we're going to unveil it on a Tuesday, but uh, we're going to – I'll play this on Mixler – why not do a lot, you know, somewhat of a live version? And then after this, in the next few minutes, for those that are listening, I'll ask live. I'll have my broadcast equipment for some uh, live questions or people that have written in questions on Mixler to make it like kind of like a Royals podcast after hours thing <laughs> or Royals Radio Recon after hours. So I think that there uh, hopefully will be a lot of questions. Again, people can send those in. Uh, and we appreciate everyone for listening here. But uh, let's talk about this Joe Buck video. He tweeted it. Well, first of all, yesterday he <laughs> tweeted, uh, and Joe Buck, of course, a proud St. Louisan, uh, he tweeted yesterday saying, send me videos of things I can do play-by-play -play for. And then he went on to sort of clarify that. Let me find the exact, uh, where are we at? Uh, let me find it. Okay. I have good news for you, he tweets. While we're all quarantined right now, I'd love to get some practice rep in, reps in. Send me videos of what you're doing at home and I'll work on my play-by-play, -play. seriously. And someone, uh, or Aaron Andrews says, please actually post these, and Joe Buck replied, Fox is making me do this due to a dearth of original events to call. These will be posted. And then he tweets a video. You want to watch? Michelle on the left is trying to prepare clip? dinner. 
Wyatt on the right fighting back a yawn, dressed like kind of a half-ass Fred Flintstone. You do want to watch a Blippi? And he's now he wants to watch Blippi, folks. Oh, and he's hit his mom. He has hit his mom. Mom is playing it up. Wyatt is crying. All hell is broken loose inside this house. Quarantine day seven. Well, I will. Joe Buck, obviously, uh, son of the famous broadcaster Jack Buck, but also a loyal and a regular season ticket holder for the St. Louis Blues. Have to throw that in. Um, I thought that it was hilarious. I watched it a couple of times and uh, chuckled and laughed the second time more than I did the first. Um, To be able to pull that off, if you will, tongue-in-cheek without breaking down and laughing yourself, I thought was a testament uh, to his abilities as a a celebrity, a broadcaster, whatever you want, somebody that's in the public eye. Uh, I thought, and I thought it was really clever. I wish, I, frankly, it had been a little longer, uh, but uh, I, I thought it was funny. And I think those are the types of things, David, quite frankly, that uh, a little lightness, a little laughter, a little levity uh, that may help all of us in the United States get through this time of, of, quite frankly, some concern and anxiousness with respect to the COVID-19 virus. Uh, I think anything we can do to uh, enjoy a little bit of laughter uh, it may prove that uh, laughter is the best medicine. It certainly can't hurt. Make sure we all care about each other as well. It's been uh, it's been a really fun, uh, close to an hour, 25 minutes here, Pat. Um, I wish we could do it regularly on the air where we have, you know, three-hour game broadcasts, but uh, the situation is what it is and uh, necessary at that to make sure we're all safe and ready for what's going to be an excellent 20th anniversary season. So uh, I wish you well. Uh, when hopefully when this all wraps up, I'll bring the broadcast equipment over maybe to your house. We'll have a beer on the back porch and maybe we'll have a, a Royals grade on the air and we can do a uh, podcast recording together as opposed to through our social distancing mechanisms at the moment, the call in techniques. So, uh, Pat, thanks again. I, I would love to do that. And David, I appreciate, uh, uh, the invitation. As I say, I think every time we're together with a, uh, play by play broadcast, it's always a privilege and a pleasure to be with you, to be on the air. Uh, to be involved with the Royals. And, you know, despite the, you know, unforeseen and early end to the season, thanks to all of the Royals fans. We hope to see you back in the 2021 season uh, when uh, hopefully we'll get this cranked up again. And uh, uh, maybe uh, in 2021, we can look forward to some hockey in May. To quote my good friend, Mark Thompson, there's nothing like a hockey playoff game on a sunny Sunday afternoon in May. Let's hope we can enjoy that next year.